Okay, so as Christians living in this world, okay, it shouldn't take us too long to realize that there is just something different about us from the rest of the world. Now, there are many reasons why Christians may feel different and set apart, especially depending on your context, where you live. However, we all share a common sense of, of feeling in this world, but not of this world, right? And the reason for this is something deeper. There's something deeper going all the way down to the root of our being that has been transformed in a way that has not happened to other people. And that's why we feel so different and set apart. Now, not only does the Holy Spirit bear witness with our spirit to this transformation in a way that we can recognize it, but the very word of God speaks about this great transformation that God has promised would happen to his chosen people. We see this promise uh, when the word of the Lord came to the prophet Ezekiel uh, in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, that says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This promise was made to the nation of Israel, but essentially to the true Israel, those who, we, those who would be united to the true Israelite, which is Jesus Christ. And because of our hearts of stone, because that has been removed and has been replaced with a heart of flesh, our affections are different because of that. Our interests are different because of that. Our minds are different because of that. Our opinions are different because of that. Our perspectives are different because of that change. Again, if you're born again, it shouldn't surprise you that as time goes on, you begin to feel less and less connected to this world and begin to feel more and more outcasted. Is that your experience? Now, why is that? Why is it that we feel outcasted in that way? Well, besides our obvious love for God, right, and our love for his word and love for his people that makes us different, there's another factor that sets us apart from the world. What is this factor that sets, sets us apart? Well, with being born again comes a kind of hatred in us. Now, before you throw tomatoes, this hatred in us is a hatred towards indwelling sin. Listen to this passage in Romans 7, uh, as Paul speaks on this issue of indwelling sin. It says, For I do not understand my own actions, says Paul. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So 
Today I want to focus on that particular factor in the life of a believer, this reality of the weight of sin within us. As we continue this study of the church being a people who are both needy and needed, I want us to see what the scripture tells us in regards to indwelling sin and how we ought to deal with this issue as needy people dependent on God. So the subject is divided in two parts. If you have the worksheet, you'll see the two parts. Uh, the first part that we'll be discussing, point number one, is seeing the weight of sin. And then point number two is laying the weight of sin down. Okay, so let, let's look at point number one. Seeing the weight of sin. Now, before we get into some of the practical points of dealing with sin, it's important to have a biblical understanding of sin in general, right? I must start with an important point that many people, even Christians, often miss. Many assume that suffering, pain, these things, is essentially life's biggest problem, right? We think of pain and suffering, that's pretty much the biggest problem in the world. But if you think this way and build upon that premise that life's biggest problem is suffering and pain, this places you in an endless or rather hopeless pursuit of seeking to remove suffering and pain in your life, um, which you will find to be impossible to achieve or at least to fulfill, to fulfill that in a permanent way as long as sin exists in this world. So as long as sin is here, pain and suffering is not going anywhere. Many believe that uh, this is the primary goal of religion or even Christianity, the removal of pain and suffering in your life. But that's not true. Even though the Christian life may produce in you peace, hope, and joy through life's trials, this isn't Christianity's primary goal, to remove pain in your life. See, the Bible shows us that suffering, pain, and death are all results of something that happened, the fall, right? Ever since sin entered the world, pain and suffering also entered the world. Therefore, our greatest problem isn't suffering directly, although it is a problem. It's act our, our bigger problem is actually sin. And again, our biggest need is rescue from sin. Now, Jesus healing the paralytic, paralytic is an interesting example of this. I don't know if you guys remember that story, but we're going to go through it anyway. So Mark 2, 1 through 12 uh, can someone read that passage? If you can see it. Sorry, it's kind of small. But. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there, were no, so that there was no room, no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came to preach to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Oh, sorry. You know what? I don't have the rest. Can you can someone read it on their Bible? <laughs> I just turned the uh, thing there, and that's not that's not the rest of it, so questioning in their hearts. hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that, that they thus question within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the 
has authority on earth to forgive sin, the death of the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Thank you, Thes. So this is an interesting um, account. This is an interesting story. And it's actually quite humorous. Um, as I was reading, I was sort of uh, laughing when I, when I read it. I don't know if that's appropriate, but it's quite humorous to imagine that the paralytic was thinking, what, what he was thinking the whole time when this was happening. Um, with amazing faith, right, he enters from the roof on a bed <laughs> with the help of four men and appears before Jesus with this desire, right, to be healed, and Jesus simply tells the man, your sins are forgiven. And I can't help but think uh, that the paralytic guy was thinking, uh, Jesus, you know, I appreciate your forgiveness of sins, but I was hoping that you would do a little something with my back or with my neck or with my legs because I'm paralyzed. Um, but although we see Jesus eventually heal the man externally, we see Christ's priority, right, in dealing first with man's bigger issue. And it's our sin problem, right? The first thing that he says to the man is uh, that your sins are forgiven. So again, our sin problem is our greatest need. Uh, and we see Christ deal with a bigger issue here. Now, with that said, I want to talk about the same issue of seeing the weight of our sin. One of the ways that we deal with our indwelling sin as Christians is to first be able to identify and recognize our sin. Again, our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins, um, and, and we obtained that through Christ. Uh, but again, with that said, uh, one of the ways that we deal with our indwelling sin as Christians is to first be able to identify and recognize this sin. And this, I believe, is the hardest part. We as fallen people are slow to talk about our sin for fear that it, for fear that it will shatter our reputations or maybe threaten our egos. It's even harder to admit our sins, let alone talk about them in general. But Romans 1 talks about our natural inclination to suppress the truth of God. Even though he has revealed his eternal power and divine nature through creation to us, um, it, we still have this issue of suppressing the truth um, even when it comes to acknowledging the sin in our own lives. With this natural condition as our default, uh, it truly takes the work of the Holy Spirit to humble our hard hearts and bring us before the word of God as a means of grace um, and again, the word of God preached to us serves its purpose in breaking us down and showing us our sins. And that's the goal of the Christian. Um, with this body, with this flesh, with this mind that has been corrupted by sin, it's always a battle to try to admit or to try to see your own sin when you're hearing, when you're hearing a sermon preached or when the word is being taught. Um, and a lot of times, uh, like Pastor Jack mentioned before, um, sometimes we'll hear the message and we say, oh, this is perfect for so-and-so, instead of thinking, okay, wait, before I start um, telling myself that this sermon works best for someone else, let me, let me see how it applies in my own life. Let me see if it'll search, or it would produce a search in my own brain and in my own heart to find sin that is still indwelling. Now think about this on a practical level. How many of you are married? Okay, all right, that's a lot of us. Okay, um, many husbands and wives, right, they struggle in their relationships because one spouse, I'm not going to say which one, male or female, but one of the spouses refuses to admit or even recognize certain sin habits 
that are causing issues in the relationship. Yet, they are blind to their sin, and pride won't let them honestly examine themselves. And so you see a lot of conflict with uh, husbands and wives. They have the same problems for years, and it's because one of the spouses just uh, doesn't want to sit there and pray and look at Scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to uh, work in their hearts and find that sin that they keep uh, suppressing and putting away. And this can be an issue with church relationships as well. If our goal is to walk alongside with others in wisdom and love, we must be humble enough to face honest examination of the heart. So first, we must recognize, of course, that this is, this is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will bring both conviction of sin and will also guide you in all truth. We see that in these verses here. Uh, someone want to read John 16, 8? So you see there, uh, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What, what does John 16, 13 say? Someone want to read that? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Amen. Okay, so first of all, the Holy Spirit, we know, inspired the writers of the scriptures, right? So his ministry in convicting and guiding us in all truth, at least in our context now, is bringing us to God's word, right? Through the regular reading and preaching of scripture. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing us to all truth. And uh, again, we have that in our scriptures. Uh, and uh, again, the, the scriptures is the primary use in the, in, the, in the church to preach God's word, to preach the truth. And we, in response to that, must allow it to do a work in our heart um, as it points out sin in, in our hearts. So here's an example of this. Turn to Nehemiah 8, 5, 12. I'm going to work on getting that bigger next time, but if you have your Bible, that'll probably help. Nehemiah 8, 5, 12. Somebody want to read that passage? And Ezra opened the book that one as well? Oh. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, I, I switched okay, it. Okay, okay. And Nehemiah, <laughs> sorry, it's hard to read behind you. Uh, sorry. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and sing portions to anyone who has nothing ready 
for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat, drink, and to sing portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Thank you. Yeah, so what we read here uh, is actually part of Israel's uh, covenant renewal ceremony and dedication to the rebuilding of Jerusalem's uh, defensive walls. And while Nehemiah had more practical concerns for Israel as a nation, like rebuilding the city walls, securing sufficient population for Jerusalem, Ezra, on the other hand, had a focus on rebuilding the community spiritually by commending the adherence of the law of God. So you see, it's almost like a church service. Uh, see them open up the book of the law, people saying amen. Um, and again, he goes on, and something happens. Notice in verses 8 through 9, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense, see, it's almost like expository preaching, so that the people understood the reading, and then look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this, is the day of, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. The question is, do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why did they cry? Well, here we see this weeping reaction from the people as they heard the law preached to them and were able to recognize their own sin. Likewise, we as believers must allow God's word to speak to our hearts and show us the blind spots where we often do not notice hidden sin. In fact, we see in scripture that the reason why the gospel, right, the good news is such good news is because our sins first have been shown to us from God's law, right? The good news is not good news if we thought we were good the whole time. Um, someone coming to you and say, hey, by the way, uh, your family is safe. And you say, oh, great. means nothing to me. My family's safe. They're always safe. They've always been safe. But when they tell you the bad news first and they tell you, hey, by the way, your house is on fire, but your family is safe. And it makes sense. The reading of God's law is telling you the problem first, which makes the gospel so much more sweeter, so much more better. And that's important for us to remember. God has shown us his holy standard, and his moral law. And as believers, uh, as a gospel-centered community, right, as believers who are gospel-centered, we are often confused on the use of the law, right, in our lives. Since we know that we're not saved by the law, right, we're not saved by works of the law, but we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So we tend to look at the Old Testament and say, eh, what's the point? I mean, why do we have to go back to reading the law? What's the point of that if we've been saved by grace? But the question is, is there use for God's moral law even now as a Christian? God's moral law, speaking specifically the Ten Commandments? The answer is yes, there is use for the law. By the way, when I speak of the law, I mean the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, not the ceremonial law or the judicial laws that were merely just a foreshadowing of Christ. Right? Those things have been abolished because they've been fulfilled in Christ um, because they were just a foreshadowing. However, the moral law is a set of laws that reveals God's holy character and standards. And this law has functions, even for us as Christians. 
in, in Lutheran theology, there's a heavy emphasis on the distinctions between law and grace. They'll say like, okay, that's law, but this is grace. This is gospel, so let's come over here. In Reformed theology, right, although we recognize that distinction, there is a difference between law and gospel, there seems to be more of a concern with, uh, it, it, there's a concern to comprehend the law in a positive way as well. So us as reformers, we, we do understand the distinction, but there is this desire, there's this, there's this uh, comprehension to look at the law according to the way that the Bible speaks on the law, and the good, the positive uses for the law in the Christian life, right? So in Scripture, we see examples in Scriptures of a positive use of the law. For example, uh, Psalm 19, 7, 8 says here that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, so again, you see in this passage a positive use of the law in the life of a believer. There is goodness in the law. Um, and just to fast forward a little bit, there's, there's mainly or basically three primary uses of the law. Number one, the first use of the law uh, is the pedagogical use, which is to convict sin, to teach, to, to show people uh, the law in a way that convicts their sin. So... Uh, that's, that's use number one, to convict sin. And this is where the law of God is used like a mirror to illuminate human sinfulness. So when we look into the mirror of God's holy standards, we see ourselves more clearly as sinful, wretched people, falling short of his standards, falling short of his glory. This use ought to bring people to recognize their desperate need, not for better, for, not for better performance, but for mercy and grace from God, which is only found in, in Jesus Christ. So the law, the first use of the law is to convict you to sin and eventually bring you to your need for uh, salvation in Christ. I got a verse to support that, Romans 3, 19, 20. Someone want to read that? Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There you go. So there's an example of the first use of the law. Second use of the law is the civil use. Okay? This is where the law of God is a universal moral standard that serves to restrain evil. We know that the law in and of itself cannot change human hearts, right? The Bible says that. Only the Holy Spirit can change human hearts. However, it can still serve to protect the righteous from the unjust, right? Uh, on, as a universal moral law. Everyone knows that it's wrong to kill or it's wrong to murder. And again, this is, these, these laws come from the Christian God. Regardless of what religion you are, it originates in the God of the Bible. Isn't that interesting? This is the moral law that God has placed that is universal for all people. This use of the law allows for a limited, unperfect measure of justice on this earth until the last and greater judgment comes to set things all straight. Uh, but again, that's the civil use of the law. Here's an example of that. Uh, Romans 13, 1 
through 3a. I'll read it. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those, those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not terror to good conduct, but to bad. And again, these governors, whether they know it or not, um, whatever moral standard that they're placing in the government originates in God. So we see here the civil use of the law in governing authorities, even though we, not, we know they're not being used faithfully or correctly all the time. So that's the second use of the law. The third use of the law is probably more re relevant to what we're talking about today in this subject. Uh, but the third use of the law is the law as the school of righteousness, which is otherwise known as the moral use or the normative use of the law. And this is where the law of God enlightens us as believers to what is pleasing to our Father, who, uh, who we seek and desire to serve in our everyday living. There's a verse for that, Romans 6, 14 through 15. It says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Verse 15 says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. So again, even though you're Christian, you're saved by the law, you're saved from the law, but you're also saved for the law. Isn't that interesting? You're saved from the law, but you're also saved for the law. You're saved from the curse of the law, but you're also saved to be a people of God who desire to be obedient to God's law. Is that complicated? It's not. It's pretty simple, right? So again, we see that even though we're saved by grace alone, the law is, is useful in many ways, especially in the life of a believer. I like what the confession says. I'll show you. Uh, see it up here. In chapter 19 on the law of God, paragraph 6, it says, Although true believers are not under the law, as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is, it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. Discovering also the sinful pollutions in their natures, you see the work of, of what it does in your heart, hearts and lives, so as examining themselves thereby that they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin. So that's, that's uh, the third use of the law, uh, the moral, the normative use of the law for the Christian life. So again, the confession only agrees with what the Bible says about the use of the law and how it serves in showing us the weight of our sin and leading us to re respond appropriately to the gospel. So seeing the weight of our sin will show our need for forgiveness and drive us to Jesus. Someone read Galatians 3.24. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Yes. I chose the NASB for that one uh, because I like the word tutor there, and I think it faithfully translates the word. Um, it's a teacher, a, a, a teacher that leads us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith, a tutor. Uh, so again, seeing the weight of our sin should show our need for forgiveness uh, and drive us to Jesus. It should show us um, our sin and bring us to humility. Right? It should cause us to be humble. Here's an example. 
of that in Luke 18, 10, 14. Um, let me have someone read that passage as well. Luke 18, 10, 10 through 14. So you see two, two prayers, two kinds of people. But which one of them went away justified? Was it the Pharisee or the tax collector? Okay. Tax collector. So while one man was blind to his sin, right? That's really what's going on. He's saying, oh, God, thank you for not, uh, that, that I'm not like this guy over here, uh, you know, that I do this and I do that. While the other guy actually recognizes his sin, and is crying. He doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beats his breath saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Again, you see that confession aspect, that recognition of sin. That's the one that left justified. Not the one that has his life straight. Or assumes that he has his life straight. Because in reality, we're all sinners. And so while one man was blind to his sin and thought himself to be blameless, that's really the, the lie. That he believed that he was good. It was the humble tax collector who was who, who saw his sin and who left justified. So you see the importance of seeing the weight of our sin. Um, and again, it, how it brings us to humility. It's also the beginning of power and confidence in Jesus, knowing our need and pursuing after the solution, which is to confess the sin before God and trust in the gospel. This is what it ought to lead to. This brings me to point number two. Yeah, if you're a sheet, you'll see point number two, is laying the weight of sin down. Laying the weight of sin down. So before you were made alive in Christ, you might not have felt the weight of sin in your life. As an unbeliever, most unbelievers, they don't feel the weight of sin in their life. They don't even notice that they sin. Some unbelievers say they don't have sin uh, because they don't feel the weight of sin. Scripture says that apart from Christ, you were considered dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, this explains how many unbelievers can continue on in sin without feeling the weight of their sin before the Lord. Now, here's an illustration. Imagine yourself as a dead corpse just lying on the floor. And as I begin to lay heavy bricks on top of you, it doesn't make a difference to you because you're dead, right? You don't feel it. It doesn't matter. Now, imagine laying down as a person who is alive and well, as I begin to lay the bricks on you, you're going to feel the weight of sin. You're going to, you're going to feel the weight of the bricks. And therefore, uh, it's sort of an illustration of the difference between being dead in your sins and being alive in Christ. Those who are dead in their sins, they're not going to feel the weight of their sin. A true indication of someone who has been born again and alive in Christ is one who feels the weight of their sin. Now, the scariest place that you don't want to be in in your life is that place where you don't feel anything either way. That your conscience has been seared to such a degree that sin doesn't really offend you anymore. That's a scary place to be. 
I've had people say, Will, you know, what should I do? I don't feel anything. I don't feel motivated. I don't feel this or that. Um, I don't feel in victory or I don't feel in, you know, I don't feel condemned. I don't feel anything. Uh, what should I do? And I always tell them the same thing. It's better to feel after you sin the weight of the sin or it's better to feel alive in Christ well and restored by the gospel. But the place you don't want to be is neither. The place where you don't feel anything. You don't feel the weight of sin uh, because that's, that's a place that um, I can't say definitively, but we know that's the place where unbelievers uh, sit on and are in, uh, in, in their life. They don't feel anything. They don't feel the weight of sin. But those who are in Christ will feel the conviction of sin. Um, okay, uh, it says here, Likewise, a true indication of someone who has been born again and alive in Christ is one who feels the weight of their sin. So although we may never notice every single sinful act that we do, we would still feel the weight of sin for the sins that we do actually know we're doing, right? Ones that we're conscious of. We're not going to know every part or every uh, sin that we do all the time. God is still revealing uh, that to us as we grow in Christ. But the ones we do know about, we're going to feel it. And I must say, it does weigh a lot, right? If you're a Christian, I'm sure you can testify of the heaviness of unconfessed sin in your life. It's very hard to carry it. It's very hard to move on without dealing with it. I love what John Owen says in his book, uh, Mortification of Sin. When he, speak, when he speaks on sin that has not been dealt with, look what John Owen says about sin that hasn't been de dealt with. He says, and I quote, It, sin, will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor. When David... When David had for a while harbored an unforfeited lust in his heart, it broke all his bones and left him no spiritual strength. Hence, he complained that he was sick, weak, wounded, and faint. There is, David said, no soundness in my flesh. That's found in uh, Psalm 38. I am feeble. I am crushed. Indeed, I cannot so much as look up. That's what uh, David says. An unmortified lust will drink up the spirit and all its vigor of the soul and weaken it for all the duties. For sin untunes and unframes the heart itself by entangling its affections. It diverts the heart from the spiritual frame that is required from vigorous communion with God. It lays hold of the affections, rendering its object beloved and desirable, so expelling the love of the Father. The unmortified soul cannot say uprightly and truly that God is its portion, having something else that it loves, namely sin. The soul and its affections that should be full of God cannot be full of him since it is entangled in worldly pursuits, end quote. So there we see John Owen rightly describe the heart of a believer who leaves sin unattended. The Bible shows us that we are to deal with this weight of sin. Now, I'm not going to uh, get into how we ought to mortify sin, but I'm going to give you two uh, essential practices that we see in Scripture that, that are important um, in the Christian life. Number one, recognize who you are ultimately sinning against when you sin. This is very important. When you're sinning, if you sin, when you fall, the first, first thing 
to be restored is to recognize who you're sinning against when you sin. Psalms 51, 4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, have you ever wondered why many unbelievers question or object why certain things are sins if it doesn't seem like a big deal? They'll say like, eh, that's a sin. Why is that a sin? It's not even a big deal. Um, it doesn't really hurt anybody. Well, we can already detect the corrupt thinking behind that because although sin always affects others around us, in one way or another, our first and foremost concern should not be whether something is a sin because it hurts and offends somebody else. Our first and foremost concern should be whether something is a sin because it offends God. That should be the primary thought. And we see here in Psalms 51, 4, uh, again, against you and you only have I sinned. Have I sinned? So likewise, the first step in dealing with sin is to recognize that when you have sinned, we have ultimately sinned against God himself, and we must own up to that. If your biggest grief is your reputation, which I understand that's important, but if that's your biggest grief when you fall and when you sin, or maybe the temporal uh, consequences of your failures when you sin, and not the fact that you've offended a holy God in heaven, then you need to ask God to, to adjust that in your heart. Sin is ultimately sin against God. Sin is always an offense directed to God, even when we sin against others. So again, recognize who you are ultimately sinning against when you sin. Point number two, confess your sin. James 5, 16. Would someone read that for us? Amen. So we, here we see a command in Scripture for us to confess our sins. Another verse, I'll read it, 1 John 1, 8 through 9. It says, if we say we have no sin, that's the problem, really. Uh, confessing the sin is, uh, at times, the, the struggle of believing that you have sinned. A lot of times it's, it's hard for our pride to recognize that. But it says here, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. However, right, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this, this verse shows us that the truth is not in you. The truth is not in us if we say we have no sin, if you don't recognize a sin. This is true not only in a verbal sense, but inwardly, inwardly as well. Many people can easily say, sure, I'm a sinner. You know how many people have told me... Uh, yeah, you know, I know we all sin, we, we're all sinners, and they say it so lightly. Again, many people can say, sure, I know I'm a sinner, I confess, yet they seem unaffected by it. They live lives as, as if they weren't guilty before, before a holy God. Therefore, the real confession is a heartfelt, soul-changing acknowledgement that feels the unbearing guilt that they have offended God with a deep shame. Again, real confession is not for the proud. Real confession of sin is for the humble. This verse also shows the faithfulness of God in quickly forgiving our sins when, when we truly confess them and be honest with God. 
God is quick to forgive your sins. Confessing our sin clears out our consciences with a fresh new start. Fresh new start. Um, if, if you've ever confessed your sin before the Lord after holding it for so long, going through a week um, without coming before the Lord and being honest with the Lord, you know how good it feels when you finally confess it to the Lord. Same thing with people, right? On a, on a uh, horizontal level, you know how good it feels that after having conflict with someone, maybe for years, sometimes for months, whatever the case may be, you know how good it feels that finally you come to this person and you say, you know what, man, we're good, right? You know, I'm, I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I did that. And it's squashed. It's, it's done. And that feels so good. And again, confessing our sin clears out our consciences with a fresh new start, giving us a sense of renewed communion with God and allows us to rest in the gospel. That's what true rest is all about. And if we are to walk in this rest, we must make confession a regular part of our Christian lives, being honest with our sin, recognizing our sin, and confessing our sin, first to God and then to others. I, uh, conclusion here, uh, when we think about what it what is it that makes us uh, Christians so different from the rest of the world? Let us remember that while many are dead in their trespasses and sins, like we once were, God has given us life through Christ Jesus. God has removed our heart of stone and has given us a heart of flesh and put his spirit in us, causing us to walk in his statutes. Sin weighs a lot. Sin is heavy for us as believers who have been born again and have received a new heart. We cannot live on as Christians without dealing with our sin. Therefore, we aim to acknowledge it and confess it. And when we lay it down, we can find freedom and joy, knowing that we are already forgiven in Christ, and we can walk in that rest. So as needy people, forgiveness in Christ is where our greatest need is met. So let's recognize our need so that we can live in light of the gospel and, and of course, help others to do the same. Amen? Any questions, by the way, or comments? Yes. I would just like to say one thing. This is just excellent teaching. Scott. Uh, just adding to just one simple point that the same way the sun, it says the sun, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Mm. Old Christians used to say, keep short accounts. In other words, don't let things build up. Mm. Take care of them when they're sin. Take care Amen. of them. Because it... Uh, so yes. Yeah. Amen. Very, very good. Very helpful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Anyone else? Comment? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's very important. Yeah, it's very important. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. Yeah, good point. 
Anyone else? Comments? Lloyd? Right. And that led him straight to the point of madness. Right. And eventually led him to kill himself in battle. While we see David's horrific sin of not only lust, but murdering a man to get that, you know, to get what he wanted. Yeah. And once he realized, wait a minute, the sin he committed wasn't just against I think Psalm 51 yeah. was in reference to that. Yeah. So, he, you know, against you and only you have I sinned. Yeah. Once we realize, once you realize that sin comes, you know, you're sinning against God. Yeah. Um, that's the real repentance. That needs to Amen. Be the real repentance. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. You made that's a, such a good point. Uh, like when you recognize that you did something wrong and you try to resolve it first on a human level, you actually never get to solve the issue because it's first and foremost a, an issue between you and God before it is an issue between you and man. And so that's a great point. Uh, it has to be resolved first up before it is uh, down. So good point. Yeah. Amen. Any others, uh, comments? All right, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word, Lord. Your word uh, is so sufficient to show us all these things, Lord. Um, and we read, these we read these stories, we read these passages, and it's so simple but your spirit brings about um, deeper levels of truths, Lord, that help us to understand uh, in such a deep and solid way how we ought to deal with sin, indwelling sin, and repentance, forgiveness, and confession of sin. Um, and Lord, we just pray that you not only leave that left here, Lord, but that we would carry this uh, understanding of your word out throughout the week, Lord, that we would apply it and um, help me, Lord, to deal with uh, any sin that I might have, Father God, and that I would deal it in the way that would please you and ultimately uh, responding to you appropriately um, according to your word and according to how you've instructed us to do so, Lord. So we thank you for your word on instructing us in this way, and we just pray that uh, you will be honored and glorified in, in this day and the rest of the day, Lord. So we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.